0: All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay Ruderman. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, and this is All Inclusive, a podcast focused on inclusion, innovation, and social justice. In the late 1980s, there were an estimated 200 lesbian bars across the United States. Now, there are only 21 remaining. These bars, often the only safe space for lesbians, are disappearing at an alarming rate. The ones that have remained open are also struggling more than ever in the pandemic. Last year, Erica Rose, an award-winning director focused on queer and female-driven storytelling, became concerned about the future of these spaces for her community. She and fellow director Elena Street immediately jumped into action and created the Lesbian Bar Project, which resulted in a viral fundraiser and documentary to celebrate, support, and preserve the remaining lesbian bars in the United States. Today, I'm speaking with Erica. Her films have screened at the New York Film Festival, the Tribeca Film Festival, and many more. Her film, Girl Talk, has amassed over 15 million views on YouTube. Lesbian bars have been incredibly important in the filmmaker's journey as a queer woman. When Erica moved to New York City for college in 2009, she said the famous West Village lesbian bar cubbyhole knew she was gay before she did. Erica, welcome to All Inclusive. Thank you for being our guest today.
1: Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. So I was
0: able to watch the Lesbian Bar Project, and I, I was really impressed by the quality of the filmmaking. I just want to start off by asking you on a personal level, how did you decide to become a filmmaker?
1: I remember I, w- I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 10. Um, I was raised by two uh, therapists, and they were very, very adamant on introducing me to uh, you know, art and culture and film. And my dad was like, okay, you need to be literate and Scorsese by the time you're 12. So mm-hmm. I was like introduced to like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, <laughs> probably a, a too young of an age, but you know, that's uh huge neither here or there. But um, so I was kind of transfixed by filmmaking. And, you know, there weren't that many women um, that I knew of that were uh, directors. There were a smattering of Um, a couple of examples. But uh, for the majority of my childhood, I didn't really see anyone who looked like me uh, behind the camera. So it wasn't until I got to high school and kind of was doing like self-education of like, oh, hey, there's like filmmakers like Mira Nair or Sally Potter or Jane Campion who are making waves. um, And they, you know, happen to be women. So um, from there, I you know, was just making my own stuff completely self-taught. And then I got into NYU film school, um, and worked my way up. Um, and after I graduated, I had done a lot of, uh, you know, working for other people. And basically when the pandemic hit, I knew that I needed to focus on my directing career. Um, I had, uh, pretty much exhausted all of my energy, uh, servicing other people's visions. And I figured it was time to service my own.
0: Well, I really like your work. um, And I want to just jump into um, your latest work on, on the lesbian bar project. And maybe we can start with the history of lesbian bars. Um, From what I understood in, in the 1980s, there were around 200 lesbian bars and now there are something like 21. How did that happen?
1: It's Hard to pinpoint one reason, but uh, we've been able to identify a couple of uh, mitigating factors. Uh, so gentrification is uh, affecting um, our coastal cities, especially, and all um, you know, businesses owned and operated by marginalized people are affected by gentrification. So lesbian bars are definitely in the midst of you know not being able to afford rising rents and um, you know exorbitant. Uh, taxes and just all around um, uh, a kind of uh, city that doesn't necessarily have the space for them. And um, so that's gentrification is like a huge issue. Um, You know, in general, lesbian bars never occupied the same kind of space in real estate that gay bars did. Um, You know, there was a brief period in the nineties in New York where Park Slope was called affectionately Dyke Slope. And it had a kind of like a lesbian epicenter, but that was really, really fleeting. So besides that, um, lesbians never really took up neighborhoods in the same way that gay men did. So because of that, our space was already limited. So we were working off of, um, you know, existing in spaces that were, Discreet or hard to find, or not necessarily completely obvious. So that definitely affects, like, you know, how visible um, and accessible these spaces are. Uh, Assimilation plays a huge factor into it. You know, I think that when gay marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court in 2015, I think the most privileged members of our community were kind of swept away with a bit of complacency. You know, I have the immense privilege that I can walk down the street in my neighborhood and go to a bar that's not necessarily LGBTQ and feel safe and that is the because of the incredible work of the generations before me but what's lost there is that there's a feeling that if we accept that if we accept that, we don't need specifically queer space. We're essentially saying that space in general can be heteronormative or should be heteronormative. And I'm, you know, against that because that doesn't reflect our population. Our population isn't just uh, straight. It isn't just binary. Um, and our bars uh, are not just bars. They're cultural epicenters and spaces for inter- intergenerational dialogue and for queer friendship and obviously uh, dating sometimes. And Uh, If we don't have a space that reflects, uh, you know, specific groups, then, um, you know, we lose power, we lose validity, we lose um, just, you know, a a way of life. So, um, you know, kind of other factors, uh, obviously, the wage gap is real. Um, You know, there's not a lot of evidence that, um, you know, especially white gay men are, um, have wage discrimination. It's mostly the other members of the LGBTQ community. And obviously women um, make less than men, um, women of color make less than white women and queer women of color make even less. So that definitely affects um, the amount of leisure dollars that people have to go out to the bars. A lot of queer women also are uh, parents. So a lot of their disposable income will go to their children rather than going out to a bar. And then finally, I think that overall, we've been moving to an online culture. Um, You know, online dating is definitely prevalent in all of our most of our lives. But beyond that, just like the way we shop, the way we consume food, the way we kind of uh, consume culture, um, the way we kind of like navigate uh, serious conversations and kind of uh, meet new people is online. Um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. But I think also, what we lose is, um, you know, brick and mortar spaces in general, not just our lesbian bars, but um, all brick and mortar spaces are really suffering because of that.
0: So clear from what you said, and from the film that that the brick and mortar space uh, plays a really important role for the lesbian community. How do you define a lesbian bar? And is it different from a gay bar or a queer bar?
1: It's a good question. Lesbian bars are um, spaces for all marginalized genders within the LGBTQIA community. So that's all queer women, regardless if they're cis or trans, non-binary people and trans men. Um, What makes lesbian bars different and distinct from gay bars is the prioritization of those genders that I just listed, uh, gay bars and queer bars in general, um, you know, are not necessarily prioritizing, uh, queer women and their experiences. And, uh, what ends up happening is that, you know, when I enter gay bars, for example, it's like, it doesn't necessarily feel like a hundred percent safe space for me. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, different dynamics and, uh, happening between gay men and queer women. Um, I'm not saying that it's always a divisive relationship, but I think that there's a lot of like kind of misogyny and, um, you know, uh, internalized, uh, homophobia against queer women, which, um, is really unfortunate, which I've experienced. Um, but, one thing that we do say in our film it's really important is that all of our bars they identify as lesbian bars and so like they'll identify as lesbian bar and queer space because it it's really, really important that our lesbian bars open the door our their doors for the most vulnerable members of the community. And the most vulnerable members of the community right now um are our trans uh, brothers and sisters and non-binary folks. Um, As we can see with the, you know, local legislation that's passing, you know, throughout the Midwest and South is that, you know, they are not a protected class. and, And it's unfortunate. And it's something that, you know, I think, as I said earlier, our more privileged members of the community, you know, don't necessarily have the same kind of uh, energy and, uh, motivation to fight for trans rights because it's like, okay, we got our gay marriage. We could probably, you know, stop. We can like, you know, live rather, um, you know, safely now. And I think that's really disappointing because our community has always been built around activism and has been built around political organization and we need to support each other. And if we don't support, um, our trans community, you know, it, 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 does affect all of us
0: so tell us about the first time you went into a lesbian bar and what that meant to you
1: Um, so I always like to say that um, cubbyhole the lesbian bar in Manhattan knew I was gay before I even did Um, I walked in in 2009 and I I had been like questioning I kind of like admitted it to myself years prior but I had been repressing it and the minute I walked into cubbyhole I was so overtaken by this like palpable and tangible energy of queer women you know even 2009 like which isn't that long ago i i felt like there was such a kind of missing contingency of representation for our community like you know i would watch like lisa chaldenko movie or like the award and kind of like get that but in terms of my day-to-day life i had no one um, and when I walked into Cubby Hole, it was almost, it was arresting, it was, um, invigorating, it was electrifying that I not only just saw, like, obviously, like, amazing, beautiful women around me, but it was more about, like, these people who were unapologetically themselves. And there was queer community, there was queer friendship, which often does not get, uh, represented or talked about enough. Because for me, like, lesbian bars are, like, far more than just, like, a place to hook up that's actually like rarely what they're used for. It's really for a place to like, you know, for me to be unapologetically myself and to be gay with my friends. And that is like such a lovely and, um, you know, uh, often overlooked, uh, experience. So when I walked into cubbyhole, I knew, um, deep down that the minute I was ready to come out, I would have a safe space to go to. And once I came out, once I started kind of living publicly as a gay woman, I found that, you know, going to lesbian bars in the city, whether it was Red Hudson, Cubbyhole, Ginger's, um, you know, i had that space to be unapologetically and unabashedly myself. And I don't necessarily have that privilege everywhere I go.
0: So if hypothetically uh, Cubbyhole or other, uh, lesbian bars in, in Manhattan or New York uh, did not exist. What do you think your um, journey of self acceptance would have looked like or self acceptance of, you know, others uh, in, in their journeys would have looked like?
1: Um, it definitely wouldn't have been as fun. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I got to, I, I don't know, it's hard to say. Um, I actually often ask myself this question of like, if I didn't go to NYU if I didn't live in New York, like what my coming out process would be like. Um, I can imagine that it would have been a lonelier experience. And I am really grateful that I had those spaces that I could just talk to all walks of life from, I mean, cubby holes is in a very international space. Like when I was there, I would meet people from, you know, um, various countries in Europe. Like I met someone from Tunisia. I met someone from, and some, someone from Yemen. Um, And to talk to, you know, someone from Yemen who was a queer woman was, um, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, this is, like, truly a melting pot. And um, that's why these spaces are so important, because I would have not necessarily gotten the opportunity to speak with her. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that if I didn't have these bars, I wouldn't have given myself the opportunity to figure out who I was. Um, and I think that a lot of times people, it's a misconception that like you come out once and then you're done. Um, you know, I have to come out almost every day of my life. Um, especially as someone who can like appear straight passing. Um, I think I've done a pretty good job at branding myself as like a queer woman. So there's a little less of that, but I think that These spaces allowed me to kind of not only come out in a way that I was met with community, but to also figure out the nuances of who I am within the LGBTQIA community. And those spaces were instrumental in that.
0: So tell me about when you first learned about the decline in lesbian bars in the United States. And when you learned about that, what compelled you to start the Lesbian Bar Project?
1: So um, as we all remember, the pandemic hit New York City in March 2020, and I had nothing but time for the first time in a while to kind of reflect on the importance of gathering, the importance of safe space. And I was on the phone a lot with my friend Alina, um, and we were just kind of processing um, the shutdown of our industry, the um, as filmmakers, and just kind of the shutdown of um, our day-to-day lives. And this coincided with a couple of articles coming out about the dearth of um, lesbian bars in the country, how that there was only, you know, uh, 16 or 15 left. And that really scared me. And it was a wake-up call because I consider myself uh, pretty ingrained in the community, and I didn't even know the numbers were so bad. So Alina and I spoke about it, and we were like, okay, let's do something about this. So she and I kind of like got our heads together and we're like, let's tell the stories of these bars as filmmakers. So we um, kind of, uh, we teamed up with uh, a couple of producers too, and we um, birthed the lesbian bar project in 2020. We set out to do a PSA um, and we knew that we wanted it to be also branded because um, one brands can pay for it. um, And as queer artists, like we need funding and two Um, it would get the kind of exposure that we knew that this project deserved. So we, you know, pitched it to a couple of brands, obviously alcohol brands were an obvious and like symbiotic option. Um, So we pitched to a couple of brands and Jägermeister made us a wonderful offer and they were just such incredible partners to us um, and really believed in the project and, you know, support the queer community, not just during pride, but every day of the year, So we also teamed up with Leah Delaria, um, who, uh, it was really important to us to have like a voice for the community. And Leah is one of the few like out queer women celebrities who actually still patronize the bars. (laughs) Like she's a regular cubbyhole and she like, that's like her spot. And so it was like, uh, you know, really, um, an easy choice to go to her and say, Hey, can you like represent the project? And she was like, of course. Um, she like, literally, we sent her the offer and like 30 seconds later, we were on the phone with her. So it, I have never experienced that before. Um, So we did, we launched our PSA in October, um, 2020. We weren't really able to film a lot in person because the pandemic was still raging. So we relied heavily on archival and we released a 90 second PSA and um, went on to raise over $100,000 for the bars. Um, one thing that we always wanted to do was obviously we're filmmakers storytelling driven first but also we wanted to add a philanthropic element so that's where the money comes in with the pool fund and you know we raised one hundred seventeen thousand dollars. that was split evenly amongst the bars um we knew that we weren't done telling the stories of these bars and also throughout the campaign a couple of bars um, we got uh, a couple of emails from the community members Saying, like, oh, you might have missed this bar and this bar. So we did more research, and we had done months of research prior to the release of the PSA. And there's not many studies on our statistics on the amount of lesbian bars in the country. So we were relying on a couple of studies, a couple of articles, and a couple of just like anecdotal evidence, but it's really, you know, they're difficult to find. so uh, we discovered a couple more. So this year, when we um, decided to do the lesbian bar project again, um, we announced a list of twenty-one bars. And we always say it's you know an estimated number. There's like you know still like new bars opening. There's bars closing. Like you know it's it's hard to necessarily pinpoint one number, but twenty-one is the closest we've gotten. And earlier this year in June, we released a 20 minute documentary. And this time, like, you know, we introduced the world to this staggering statistic that there were like, you know, few lesbian bars left in the country. And now we wanted to tell the human stories behind these bars. So our film is through the lens of the bar owners, community activists, patrons, and archivists. And they tell the stories of not just, you know, the bars themselves, but how it affects our lesbian culture. And I think that you know, if there are few bars left in the country, it begs the question, do we still need them? And what is the future uh, for queer women?
0: So, you know, corporate investment sometimes gets a, a, a bad name, but it sounds like Jägermeister was really um, a good partner and, and came in with the best of intentions and really allowed you to to get this uh, moving forward, the project moving forward. Um, I, I also wanted to just, you know, when, when Leah Delaria from the fame of Orange is the New Black came in. Do you really think that that gave your project uh, a boost and 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 a lot more recognition?
1: Definitely. I mean, Leah uh, is such an icon and she has an immense following, um, not just from Orange, but just from her body of work for the past decades. Um, so it gave us uh, even more credibility, which was really important to us because we wanted to you know, cement ourselves in the zeitgeist. And I think we were really successful in that because there are many, many people who I've met who are like, oh, I've heard of your project. I've heard about the dwindling number of lives bars. And I think a year ago, that wasn't the case. So I think we succeeded in that. And Leah is a wonderful champion of these bars and she has a big following. Um, to your point about Jägermeister, yeah, there's, you know, Obviously, rainbow capitalism is at play with the kind of relationship between um, corporations and the queer community. And I think it's some people are very transparent in (laughs) how they, you know, kind of exploit the queer community for their own financial gain. I think Jaegermeister differentiated themselves because, you know, they gave us money and supported us in October, um, in September and October of last year. They could have easily said, like, oh, we'll wait for like Pride, you know, month, but they, You know, they had also um, launched uh, something called Hashtag Save the Night, which was an initiative to help uh, nightlife uh, institutions and venues that were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So they did a lot of great work helping spaces, you know, stay afloat during the pandemic. And that was really attractive to us because we were like, okay, they're, you know, actually doing the work to support the community that... Um, you know, and I think that a lot of queer people work in nightlife, a lot of nightlife people are queer. And I think that it just felt like a really good relationship. So they're incredibly supportive. They, you know, help fund our um, 20 minute film. um, And they're, you know, big advocates and are some of the reason why we got, you know, so much press as well.
0: So you mentioned um, in the film about recent generations not being aware of the struggle and sacrifice that went into places like, um, cubby hole. And, and can you tell me a little bit about the activists who actually laid the groundwork so that these spaces could exist?
1: Yeah. So there's, um, you know, people like, Stormy DeLavere, who um, was arguably the pr- first person who threw a punch at Stonewall. And Lisa Canastrosi, the owner of Henrietta Hudson, talks about her with such reverence. Um, they were friends. They Stormy like, worked at the kind of original cubbyhole, which is confusing. The original cubbyhole is where Henrietta... Hudson is now. Um, and then they moved to, uh, deeper into the West village. So Sorme worked there and worked, um, you know, was one of the bouncers there and, um, you know, was an incredible force and someone who kind of like broke gender norms from, you know, a, during a time that that was like, you know, there wasn't even language for that. Um, you know, and then we we talked to so many people who were, like on the front lines of um, the movements, whether it was in the seventies or, you know, the nineties, which we kind of saw a resurgence of like the lesbian chic movement. Um, you know, one thing to note is that uh, lesbian bars had a divisive history. Um, I think that a lot of, there's a lot of cases where um, these bars were discriminatory against, um, you know, women of color. Um, we talk about that in the film, um, for example, uh, the bar, Bonnie and Clyde, on one hand, the owner, Elaine Robinoli was, you know, revolutionary in the sense that she was able to um, own and operate a bar in the 1970s as a single woman. Um, you know, the, the women weren't even allowed, like, as like a lot of us know, weren't even allowed to get a line of credit without the approval of their husbands or fathers, let alone a liquor license. So there was something, you know, incredibly Uh, you know, admirable about what she did. On the other hand, her bar had a race-based quota and they would allow like two or three black women into their doors. And, you know, during brunch service on a Sunday, black women were served different food than uh, their white counterparts. So in response to that, um, you know, uh, folks like Audre Lorde uh, were part of the organizing founding members of the Salsa Soul Sisters, which is the first black and Latina lesbian organization in the country. So we felt it was really important to talk about them in our film because that is part of lesbian bar culture. Um, and they weren't able to necessarily occupy space in the same way that white women were in terms of traditional bar settings, but the spaces where they were able to occupy served the same purpose that the lesbian bars, brick and mortar spaces did. So it, um, we spoke to a lot of members of the, uh, the Salsa Soul Sisters. Um, and then we also like some folks that we didn't get to include in the film, like for example, Leslie Cohen, who opened Sahara was one of the uh, founding members of Sahara, um, a kind of pivotal, um, bar in the 1970s in New York. Um, and she talked a lot about how the bars were often mob run and she, uh, wasn't able to get, a liquor license and she wasn't even able to sign a lease. Um, and she was an unmarried woman. Um, and she an married gay woman and she had to, I mean, she speaks about how ridiculous this is, but like the only, like the closest like male relative she had was her brother who was unfortunately at the time institutionalized. So, he was able to sign on her behalf but it if you look at it in the vacuum it's completely ridiculous that she wasn't able to sign on her own behalf for a liquor license for a lease when you know she was like able to function whether and her brother was sick. so you know we talked to her and she was Sahara had to close um, four years into its lifespan and she was part of the movement to kind of start the queer party scene. So, um, yeah, I mean, those were kind of, um, a couple, there's so many more people I'm leaving out, but, um, you know, there's, uh, just so many different aspects of the community that I'm like, that we don't even have time to talk about, which is unfortunate.
0: Well, I know that, that one of the bars that, um, is featured in the lesbian bar project is a bar uh, called hers in, in Mobile, Alabama, um, run by two African American women, which is fairly unique because you make the point in the film that there are almost no bars except for that one um and maybe another one that that is run by black or, or brown women um can you talk a little bit about that and and i mean to own a bar in mobile alabama where there's so much you know homophobia um that must be a difficult uh business to 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 run but maybe you could talk a little bit about that
1: so when we met Rachel and Sheila Smallman, um, the owners of hers, um, it was like love at first sight. <laughs> um, they have such a effervescent energy, um, and they, they, they are just wonderful, wonderful human beings and we're obsessed with them and they're obsessed with us. And it's like a mutual love that's really exciting. But when we first started talking to them, um, you know, it was really interesting to us, uh, to, we, we knew we needed to go down to mobile because of what you're saying, because, um, they are the only lesbian bar on our list that is owned and operated by, uh, black women. And it, one thing that they talk about is that they started the bar as a reaction to feeling discriminated, not just by heterosexual people, but by gay men in the South as well. And I think that in the South and it's in spaces that are not coastal cities in um, the United States, it's Like these bars are really melting pots for like the entire community because there is such a lack of safety in um, many of the spaces. Like I talk about how in Brooklyn, New York, I could walk down the street into a bar and hold my girlfriend's hand and feel okay, But that's not necessarily true of uh, space in the South or the Midwest. I think that one thing that was important, though, is that Mobile, Alabama is a really dynamic and nuanced city there's, um, I kind of, my expectations were uh, definitely different than what I experienced. Um, Granted, I was surrounded by queer people because we were following a lesbian bar in Mobile, but I think that there's definitely a really loud and active vocal contingency of people who are accepting, who are not just, you know, queer people, but are allies who are trying to make change and difference there. So I think that it's not monolithic um, and that's really important, but yeah, I mean, Rachel and Sheila, um, you know, are defying a lot of odds by opening that space. I mean, hers is an, an electric space. Um, everyone there is greeted with a hug. Um, you know, Sheila walks people to their cars to ensure safety. The staff is incredibly welcoming. Um, it really is like a home away from home. And that was what we wanted to capture when we were filming, um, it's a space where the community can gather and be themselves, where they might not necessarily be able to in their day-to-day lives.
0: So, Erica, can you talk a little bit about your own personal activism in the LGBTQ community? And, and maybe um, how do you believe that younger generations can or will become more involved?
1: Yeah, so I think that there's definitely a generational gap um there's kind of an older guard that talks about you know which we point out in our film that like you know younger generations don't know what we went through and that's something that it's important for us to listen and to educate ourselves as younger people about really what older queer people went through in order to have the rights that we do today on the flip side of that i think that I, and, you know, once again, this is not, this is more anecdotal than anything, but I think that there's a kind of sometimes a resentment from older generations about the nuances in language, the nuances in gender expression and identity that has emerged in the past 10 years. And I think that older generations can learn something from us too and learn something that they we don't have to be so militant in our definition of for Example, lesbianism. Like, I make the point um, throughout my life that, like, yes, I identify as lesbian, I identify as gay, I de- identify as queer, but you know, I think that many people can use that label of lesbian, and it doesn't mean you know that it's just a cis woman who's only attracted to other cis women. I think that there's more um, room for different kinds of people to use that label, and that's beautiful. Um, I think that you know, one thing we tracked in our film is this disparity between kind of like an older guard of like what it means to be a gay person and have like queer space versus what our current generation means. Um, You know, Henrietta Hudson changed their logo after 30 years and it was more of like a femme presenting person and then it changed to, you know, someone that's something that is gender inclusive And there was backlash. I mean, Henrietta Hudson got backlash on Instagram. We got backlash for including them in our campaign. They started, Henrietta Hudson started identifying as a queer human bar built by lesbians. And for us, that still met our definition of a lesbian bar. And I think that there were certain people who felt really, really disappointed and felt betrayed because they felt that the women only spaces were disappearing and that, one of the few institutions that still kind of identified as a woman, you know, woman-centered space was now using gender-inclusive uh, labels and logos. And Lisa Kanesashi, the owner of Henrietta Hudson, had the best response I've ever heard to that complaint. She said, you thought 10, 20, 30 years ago that you were in a women-only space, a gay women-only space, but you were wrong. There were trans men there. There were non-binary people there. There were bisexual and pansexual people there. Those people have always been part of the lesbian community, and now we have the language to include them, and we have the language to make them feel uh, seen and not make them feel isolated. And um, I, you know, as I said earlier, it's. Uh, I think that we can do better than our gay male counterparts. We can do better than. Uh, kind of the more privileged members of the community where we can open our doors to many different kinds of people. And I think that it's a responsibility and a wonderful gift that, you know, lesbian bars can give to the community.
0: So let's talk a little bit about allyship. And do you feel it's important to have non-queer allies in the effort to save um, these bars in general?
1: That's a really good question. And I think that one thing that we just need to talk about in general is that most of these bars survive because of allyship. Um, You know, as I stated before, there's, you know, the wage cap is absolutely uh, devastating. And most of these bars rely on allies and straight people to come to their bars and spend money. I think that it's, you know, they can't, especially lesbian bars, can't survive alone on just queer populations patronizing their spaces. I do, however, think that there's a way to support lesbian bars and to support gay bars and queer spaces without, you know, overtaking the space. So, for example, a lot of gay bars have banned bas- straight bachelor parties because it's I-, I find that like completely inappropriate. It's like you're going to like kind of like flaunt your heteronormativity in a space that has like fought to kind of like <laughs> counteract that. Um, and I think that it's really important that when you are a straight ally, when you come into a space that's, you know, not made for you, you're a guest, and you have to be deferential to the people that are prioritized in that space. So for example, it's not like, I think that a way to support it, it's like spend your money there, buy drinks, you know, hang out with your queer friends, you know, maybe don't throw a bachelorette party at a gay space. <laughs> um, if you're a straight person, um, maybe don't like kind of like invite like a bunch of straight people into that space and kind of like occupy and take up room that would have uh you know so that means that queer people can't access it um and you know one thing is like be really mindful of not harassing queer women um you know there's unfortunately a lot of cases where uh, straight men will come into lesbian spaces and like harass and sexualize us. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's like a bigger systemic issue that a lot of straight men feel that queer women's sexuality is for them and made for them as a presentation um, to them. And that's completely untrue. Um, and we like exist as people outside of their gaze. So I think that it's, you know, I'm not advocating for, you know, exclusionary practices in any regard. Um, I think that there's no, like, check at the door of, like, who are you? Like, you can't be here. I'm actually, like, you know, pretty against spaces, like, you know, how, like, the wing used to operate that that was, like, women only. Like, I'm pretty against that. Like, I don't think that there should be mandates at the door about, like, which genders are allowed into a space. Um, I do think, however... That if you know you're, as a straight ally, if you know you're walking into a queer women's space, that you need to realize that and that you're not the priority there.
0: So during the making of the film, what what surprised you the most that you you learned about lesbian bars? And maybe you could give us a a favorite story um, from the bars that you visited.
1: You know, one of the things that surprised me actually was um, a bar from the past, Meow uh, Mix, that, that we cover in the film briefly, and um, it was around in the 90s in the Lower East Side. And obviously, I knew that queer bars and queer establishments had a really complicated and often um, turbulent relationship with the police. But one thing that was interesting talking to Brooke Webster, who was the owner of Meow is that Giuliani's administration was actually kind of their biggest foe um, in terms of their like own kind of survival. Um, Basically, like, you know, there was mandates and there was laws and legislation that was passed to be, you know, predatorial to, um, you know, marginalized uh, business owners and that service marginalized people. So like, there'd be like code violations that were like, completely insane that would essentially enact a shutdown. So one thing that she had to navigate, there was like kind of this um, uh, kind of whisper network of people who were in nightlife spaces. That'd be like, Oh, someone from the mayor's office is here. Like, you know, do X, Y, Z. So uh, what they would essentially do is the mayor's office would uh, make, give so many fines to certain bars that they had to shut their doors. And I thought that that was something that like, you know, Giuliani talks talked a lot about his like cleanup efforts and his cleanup efforts were you know in a lot of ways just like completely try to erase you know marginalized people whether they are people of color or queer people or women-centric spaces so that was like really interesting to learn um obviously i knew his administration was um completely unfavorable and completely um violent towards a lot of marginalized people, but to kind of learn the specifics of how they kind of shut down these spaces was interesting. Um, and then I think learning about, you know, as I, we talked about earlier, just like truly how egregiously racist some of these bars could be. I think I obviously knew that, you know, there was racism in their spaces, but to learn specifically that there were race-based quotas at the door Um, to me was really disturbing and something that we need to start talking about as a community. Um, And I think that there's still like, you know, numerous reparations to be done in order to make uh, queer women of color feel safe um, in lesbian bars and feel welcome in lesbian bars. Our goal for the future of the Lesbian Bar Project is to tell more of the stories of these bars and kind of go outside of uh, the parameters we set in the 20 minute film. And a lot of the bars we've talked to, you know, just like throughout the process, um, have like the owners have like amazing stories. Like Audrey Corley, the owner of Boycott Bar in Phoenix talks about how she bought her first bar for $3 and has this insane story of how she was able to do that. And, you know, I think that these like, we're really excited to kind of continue the project to, um, you know, tell more of these stories behind the bars. So
0: let's talk a little bit about how people, I know, I know that the, um, the lesbian bar project is available to view for free. Uh, Maybe you could talk about how people can access that. And also, you know, I know you did a fundraiser and, and, and it was successful. Are you continuing to, to raise funds to, to help these bars?
1: So people can watch the film for free going to lesbianbarproject.com um it's also on the Jaegermeister YouTube page, global YouTube page. Um, and it's 20 minutes and uh feel free to watch and enjoy. Um people can also follow along the project on our Instagram, which is at Lesbian Bar Project. Um we did another fundraising campaign this past Pride. Um we are also um, announcing on tomorrow, a new partnership with the dating app Hinge. So they're raising awareness and, um, you know, giving funds to the Lesbian Bar Project, which is really exciting. That will go to the pool fund for the bars, um, making a contribution. Um, so basically we, after our partnership with them, um, in the, uh, around labor day, we're going to announce our total number raise, but it is, uh, we were able to raise over a hundred thousand dollars again for the bars, which is really exciting. So, um, our grand total for the, you know, the money we raised during the pandemic will be over, um, $200,000, which is incredible. And we're really excited about that. Um, we'll be announcing specific numbers, um, uh, Uh, around Labor Day. And, um, in terms of like more fundraising, and I think the goal right now is to get people to go to the bars. Um, that's always been a goal of mine and Alina's is to say like, Hey, please go to the bars. Like, you know, you can give money to us, but like the most important thing is support our bars show up for your bars. We literally say that at the end of the film and we're actively working on, um, you know, turning this into an episodic docu-series. So that's our priority right now.
0: So, I know one of the goals is to to help these bars that exist to continue to survive. Do you feel that your project will lead to more bars opening across the country?
1: Yes, we're actually already seeing that. Um, we followed Joe McDaniel, Rage Pike, um, who are opening as you are bar. It was really important to us to follow. Um, a new space that's opening because often how we talk about lesbian bars is through loss, disappearance, and trauma. And it was really important to us to show like, hey, here's a new lesbian and queer space that's opening that is, um, you know, filled with optimism and filled with excitement. And we're getting so many messages from people around the country um, opening new lesbian bars. Um, There's a spot in Astoria that's trying to open right now called Dave's. Um, There's a spot in LA called um, Hot Donna's that's trying to open. And so we're really um, excited. And I think that there's going to be a lot more in our future. And I can't wait to uh, go to those spaces and to witness them.
0: And maybe you could talk about what you learned about yourself through this whole journey of making the film. Um, I know there were very many emotional moments. I I saw an interview you did on PBS Newshour, in, in which people were, you know, writing back, um, comments that were, you know, making you extremely emotional. So maybe you can talk about like, like what the whole project, um, did for you personally.
1: I, I love this question. I, I no one has actually ever asked me this question. <laughs> um, I think that it did so much. I mean, it made me feel whole again. Um, It made me feel a purpose. And I'm just so excited that I can, you know, showcase this story. Like as a filmmaker, my goal was always to tell stories that are overlooked or forgotten or unseen. And I think that Alina and I set out to tell the stories of these bars, and it's just really, really exciting that we're getting so much positive feedback and that people, you know, are learning something, but also feel celebrated. And I think that (laughs) it's so, like, as I said earlier, a lot of times we talk about, like, gay experience as that of trauma. And I think it's, it's really important to show the beauty and the passion and the optimism and the excitement that's within us. And I think that it was really important to do that, especially as this pandemic keeps raging on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we have stories like, you know, um, Blush and Blue in Denver, they um, told us and they like went on a couple of uh, interviews and said this that they weren't, wouldn't have been able to survive without us. And I'm like, oh my God, like I didn't even set out to like, you know, we didn't set out to like save any bars. Like we knew that we didn't necessarily have the tools to do that. Um, but the fact that we were able to keep these doors open for at least a couple more months to me, just feels like a, an honor of a lifetime. So I'm really excited to keep on um, pushing through for the community. And I'm really excited to see what the future holds for us.
0: Well, thank you so much. I just want to leave, with telling our our audience um, different things that they can do to to support what you're doing. Um, you know, we said you know go and and watch. And I've watched it, and and I would recommend anyone to watch it because I think it's it's a very well done piece of film with a strong message. The Lesbian Bar Project. Um, anything else that people can do if they want to to get involved and and you know contribute and 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 help lesbian bars to continue in the united states
1: go to our website there's a map of the united states and we show where every lesbian bar is located show up for your bars Um, our pool fund is closed and thank you for everyone who donated this year Um, but for now what folks can do watch our film uh support us on social media and show up for your bars
0: Erica, it's been such a pleasure um, speaking to you. I think your activism has been extremely impactful and will continue to be impactful and um, really appreciate having you as my guest today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful.
0: All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society you can find all inclusive on apple podcast google play spotify and stitcher to view the show notes transcripts or to learn more go to rudermanfoundation.org slash all inclusive have an idea for a podcast be sure to tweet at JRuderman. ruderman